Hey, how's it going, guys? You're listening to the first episode of the Ghost of Text podcast. I want to start by thanking all of you guys for taking the time out of your day to come and listen to me ramble about movies and all that. Uh, I want to start today for the first episode to talk about The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. This is Netflix's new uh, Western movie that was directed by the Coen brothers. And what's funny about this is that I completely ignored the trailers. I just saw the, a title of a movie coming up on Netflix, and I just didn't think much of it. And so I saw the poster, and at the bottom of the poster it said it was directed by the Coen brothers. And as soon as I saw that, I knew I had to see this movie. Because the Coen brothers just make some of the best movies that just blow your mind, and they work with so many different genres. It's phenomenal. If you're not familiar with the Coen brothers... They've directed movies such as The Big Lebowski, uh, Fargo, No Country for Old Men, and Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? That's some of their biggest movies on their roster. And if you've seen those movies, then you'll understand what I'm talking about as I carry on forward. Because they just they they do awesome stuff. They really they they're good at making a movie that has a very simple plot from the start. It seems very simple. And then as you carry along, you notice they start digging into much more complex details. And that is without a doubt seen in this movie right here, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. This movie is about uh, six different Western stories that take place within about two hours and 17 minutes. And they all carry on different themes, different characters, different actors, different stories. And they're all just combined into this one giant depiction of the Western frontier. And one of the things I loved about it so much was that it blends in all of the different kinds of dialogue and humor and style that the Coen brothers have grown in over the years. I mean, they, it starts by showing cartoonish humor and starts showing slapstick and then it, as it carries on into the second act, it starts going more bleak and dark and I guess just, I wouldn't say pitiful, but just, it, I'd just say dark and gritty. And then when you get to the third act, the final two stories, it starts becoming much more reflective and insightful. And it starts making you think about what they're really trying to say. So it's just this blend of all the stuff they've done over the years just into this one movie. And you could tell because they direct these stories as if they're just six separate movies that are six separate westerns put into one large movie. It's 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 amazing. And before I start talking about these these stories in the movie and their deeper meanings and analyzing them, I just want to say that I am definitely going to be digging into spoiler territory. So I'm going to be talking all the details of the story and everything. So for those of you who haven't seen the movie already, I would very highly suggest that you go and watch The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix and then come back and, and enjoy listening to the discussion. Or if you want, if you don't mind spoilers, by all means, just stick around and listen to what I have to say. And if you've already fallen asleep by now, then I guess just uh, sweet dreams as I carry along. All right. All right, this first story in the movie is what the title says. It tells the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. 
And this is a character played by Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, I think he was in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I think that's what I remember him from. I remember him as the villain in Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, but that's just uh, young me talking. <laughs> but it he plays the character named Buster Scruggs, and Buster is this character who... He's a mix of different uh, archetypes for the Western genre. He's a gunslinger, so he like shoots really fast. He does the gun twirls, the all, all the showy stuff. But he's also a musician, and he plays on the guitars. He rides on his horse. And he also plays a very uh, fourth-wall-breaking-esque kind of character, much like The Mask or like Deadpool or like Frank Underwood. And he constantly talks to the camera about how he views living on the frontier, how he views every situation he's in as he goes along with pretty much just little mini adventures in his life. And he walks around, he's dressed in all white. He's got all these like little fancy things put onto his outfit. He's got a huge giant round hat that he's wearing as he's going into these saloons. And as he talks to people and gets involved with the other characters, everybody wants to fight him. And whenever I was interpreting it the first time, I thought it was just simply because uh, he looked different. He was short, kind of odd. He was very weird dressed. So I figured a lot of the one, a lot of them were just pushing to fight him just because he was weird. And then when I watched it the second time, I think it was much more off based off of this character's ego. And I think Buster was somebody who didn't necessarily start the fights, but he would create the situation that would, in, you know, entice people to want to fight him. So he was a, he was a button pusher. And I think that's what part of the big part of the story is for him and what the main themes are, because as the story carries on, he keeps fighting people. He keeps cartoonishly like a, like a Looney Tunes cartoon, but with blood and gore killing a bunch of people until he's challenged in a duel by another person who's very similar to him, who's wearing all, instead of all white, he's wearing all black, he's got all the studs, he's got a weird funny hat, he sings on his horse, and he challenges Buster to a duel. And Buster starts, you know, talking himself up, as he always does in this story, and he keeps, just keeps chatting and going along until he loses in an instant, and he gets shot in the head, and he dies. And then... The story just starts shifting as it ends towards the man who killed him, who's almost the same exact guy, just looks different. And he's singing on his horse. He's got the same ego now. He's carrying on forward. And I think the way that ending was carried out by the Coen brothers, I would say that what they're trying to dig at for the audience is trying to give a story about ego and what ego can do and how it can blind you or how it makes you lose sight of what your true goals are. I mean, he, for the most part, his ego gets him wherever he wants for Buster. It, he, he's able to fight people and win easily. And then he's able to just keep trash talking, trash talking, trash talking. But all of that trash talking made him blind to the guy who was much better than him and was able to take him out in an instant. And then the cycle just continues with this new guy where he has the same exact amount of ego where he thinks he's the best in the West. And, he just keeps the, the cycle continues. Now, I don't know if it's more of, I guess, discussing ego for every single person or just an everyday thing, or if it has to do with ego that's built in success amongst different fields. 
So if you're somebody who's successful in business and you know you keep thinking that you're the smartest guy out there and then all of a sudden you get scammed and you lose all of your money because you thought you were the best on top and then you're blinded for one split second and you lose. So I, I mean, I think it, I think it could, could go any direction for what it's trying to say for ego. But I think the lesson it's trying to tell people is that ego can blind you, but you need to learn the difference between being proud of your own work or being proud of something that you do versus being so, so, so full of yourself that you're losing sight of your surroundings and you feel like you're just living in your own world where you're buster and you start talking to the camera about how you view life as if the world revolves around you. And then before you know it, boom, you've reached the end and you realize this horrible uh, reality that the world does not revolve around you and that there's always going to be somebody better than you. There's always going to be somebody better than you in any field. And it's, 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 I guess it's more of a cautionary tale to uh, get people to realize that before they're too far gone. And I guess the whole outlaw trope they carry, they have in this first one is used in the next story, which the second story is about uh, a bank robber who's going into this bank in the middle of nowhere. And the bank robber is played by James Franco. And he does an okay job with this performance. I mean, I don't think the Coen brothers wrote that much for him to do or say because his character is supposed to be much more of just a tough guy persona that you see in common westerns. But the story talks about a guy who goes into a bank in the middle of nowhere to rob it. And the bank robber is taken completely off guard by the bank teller who's completely prepared and starts shooting through the floors with shotguns and starts making, uh, this sounds awful, but it's, it's like a suit of armor made of tin pans that are able to deflect his revolver bullets. So he's deflecting James Franco's bullets as he's just running at him with the, I think he's running at him with a shotgun just to hit him and knock him out. So <laughs> it was so weird. So he's wearing that stuff and he knocks James Franco, the bank robber out. And he wakes up realizing that he has already gone through his trial and has been sentenced to execution for attempted bank robbery. And he's in the middle of nowhere and this group of men have him sitting on a horse with his neck uh, wrapped with the rope already attached to the tree. And they're about to just uh, spook the horse and have the horse run away so he can just hang there. And before that can happen, the... Uh, Native Americans, uh, I forgot what, I think they might have said what tribe it was that was attacking. I might have, I might have missed it. But they, they come in to attack all of the people that are there for the hanging. And the only person left alive at the end of the attack is James Franco. And so he's trying to survive, but the horse keeps moving further and further out. And he's trying to stay on the horse until he's found by a guy who's herding cattle. And the guy comes and saves James Franco off the horse. And James Franco agrees to help this man uh, continue uh, herding his cattle um, down to the next town. And then uh, a few moments before they're getting into town, lawmen start approaching the caravan of cattle they have. And James Franco's new friend just up and runs it, just books off. And when the lawmen get there, he realizes that the cattle was stolen and since James Franco's the only one there to answer for it, they are assuming that he's the one who stole the cattle. So he's brought back into town and sentenced to hang. 
And this time, it it goes off entirely. They put the bag on his head, and it ends with him being hanged, and that's the end of his story. Now, this one digs in more, I guess, not as a individual analysis as it is more of a societal analysis because they're trying to get into the mind of a criminal i believe the cohen brothers are because as i guess after he's fallen sorry about that guys that was a, a technical malfunction going on with my phone it's the first technical malfunction of the show yay round of applause for me for being awful at this um I believe what I was talking about was uh, a societal look in the second story involving James Franco as the bank robber. And I think they're trying to see it more as how people perceive James Franco versus more of how James Franco perceives himself. Because even though he was trying to rob the bank and he was pretty pissed that the bank robbery had failed more than him actually doing something wrong, upon the guy who's hurting, hurt, hurting the cattle... Uh, releasing him, he agrees to help that guy, which is completely outside of what they've established James Franco's personality is so far. So it's it's a very quick jab at, I think, redemption that he's trying to get for himself. But by the time that the lawmen show up and they see him, the only person there with all the cattle, they're just assuming automatically that he's the one who stole it without you know the proper uh, thought as to what other conditions might be there. But to be honest, they're in the middle of nowhere. What are they supposed to think? But he ends up still being hanged. But the second time when he's being hanged, he's just not nervous at all. And I think it's just because he not just... I don't think the first hanging in this story was his first hanging ever. I think he'd probably been sentenced to hangings multiple times and then just somehow survived them and survived them until he got to this one. And I think it was something where he's just accepting the fact that no matter what happens, he's always going to end up there at the, at the hangman. And so I think it's, if it's going to reflect more on modern times, I would say it looks more at how we perceive redemption in people and how a lot of the times we think people are too far gone or somebody really can't fight for a new life or a new, uh, I guess, a new path in morals or principles and I would say it's pretty relative. I mean, there's definitely cases where a lot of people seem too far gone when they continue bad things over and over and over and over again in their life. And there's also people who try to seek redemption and seek a new path or a new uh, way to get accepted by the community and by people in society, but our perception of them is too far gone. And we've just settled in into how we think of a person and we've already just damned them, and we've already just passed our judgment. And it's a sad reality for those kinds of people because they're sort of living in a, a living hell. They're in a living hell because they just can't get whatever they want. They're just stuck in the same place forever. God, this is so optimistic, right? I know you guys wanted to listen to such a happy story. Well, it's, uh, it's only going to go even darker down the pit until we get into the next one. Okay, the third story is starring Liam Neeson, which I think he probably does my favorite performance in the entire movie. But Liam Neeson is starring this guy who runs a traveling show 
in a way it's kind of a freak show because his attraction is a man who's amputated at all four limbs and just is pretty much just a, a guy just sitting in a chair with spotlights on him and this guy recites different poems he recites different speeches and i think one point he was talking about shakespeare and then at one point he was reciting the gettysburg address and he goes through all of this stuff in his show and liam neeson is the guy who runs the show carries the card around uh gets everything set up and then when the show's over he goes around with his hat and has people donate money to the show and then he just picks everything up keeps going with his attraction and just keeps going to show to show in town to town now when they first start showing how his show works they show that he has a wide audience and there's all these people that applaud and everybody's in tears and they're willing to pay any money they can to Liam Neeson and just let them go on their way or even help him out with the moving and as he gets further and further along from town to town the audience dwindles the the reaction dwindles, people start leaving midway through the show, and then he ends up with like a show of three people in the audience, and then nobody wants to pay anything for the show. And as he's getting depressed about the failure he's having, Liam Neeson travels into another town, and he finds that everybody's surrounding the show at the center of the town with all this noise, and everybody's shouting, and... It's a guy hosting a show where he has a chicken that's, I guess, doing math or something, where somebody shouts out a number or shouts out a, an addition or a subtraction equation, and the chicken goes and pecks at a number. So they're like, oh, the chicken can do math, the chicken can do math. And everybody flips out and goes crazy, and Liam Neeson witnesses this show that's taking place and decides to approach the manager of that show after it's all done and buys the chicken from him. And so he takes the new chicken he bought, brings it back to the wagon where he has the amputee man that he has performing with him, and he leaves the town with everybody, with the chicken and the man, and he finds this uh, railroad track that has a giant cliff above it carrying into a stream. And he picks up this big rock as he goes over to the railroad track, throws it over the edge and watches the water splash as the rock goes in to see how deep the rock goes. And the story ends with him walking up to the cart and smiling at the amputated man, and then it cuts to black. Now, what I love, I think this is probably my favorite of all six stories, because it does this awesome stylistic approach to a story where there's very little dialogue going on. Very few people are talking, or most of the talking that's going on is from the amputee man's show, where he's reciting the speeches and he's reciting the poems. And everything else is just implied. And you just see all these people just looking at each other. And you know what they're thinking about with their actions and what they're, uh, how they're looking at each other. And Liam Neeson is somebody who you really don't know what his grasp is of the situation. You don't know if he's the amputated man's father or if he, if he kidnapped this man or whatever. But this ending just gets so sad because when you see him pick up this big rock, I mean, you could tell the rock's about the size of this man and throwing it over the edge and he comes back and just smiles at him. You know that he's, he's going to kill this man. He does. He feels like he doesn't need him anymore. So he just picks him up and he throws him over the edge and it makes the reality of those situations so much more gut wrenching and 
intense, which is so weird because it, it's carried on in such a slow manner. And the message I would say this one goes about, I think it carries on two different messages. The first message would be the selfishness that's carried on in the entertainment industry when it comes to managers versus entertainers and how easy it is for the show business era, not in their era, show, for people in show business to just throw uh, an entertainer away or throw a client away or whatever just because that person isn't making them money anymore. And they don't really care what happens to that person. They just care about this new thing that they can work with that can make them more and more and more money, which is a, is a trope that or a theme that the Coen brothers really dig into a lot with their movies, especially No Country for Old Men and Fargo. He really focuses on greed and greed. It sours a lot of people, but in different ways, because sometimes people are greedy over money or much like the first story, they're greedy over their success or their ego. And they do get success, but it's at a certain cost. And a lot of times people lose their humanity when they're focused so far into their greed. And it's just another cautionary tale that they're telling in order to get people more aware of what they're capable of. Now, the second message I think they might have been going for that I'm not quite sure whether or not I agree with is this message between the amputee man's speeches and the people watching the chicken. Now, when they show the people that are sitting and watching the speeches, they're just sitting still, they're paying attention, and then when they go to watch the chicken, they start like yelling and throwing money as fast as they can and trying to get as close as they can to the show, and they're all packing in like sardines around watching this chicken just do math. And, <clears throat> sorry, I think the point that they were trying to make is about the audience reception to more, I guess, in less intellectual content versus more intellectual content. And I think he's saying, well, both of them are saying that people will receive intellectual content, but the way they react to it's very different because everybody's going to sit and they're going to watch it. And at the end of the day, that content can only last for so long and before people start going away from it or they feel like they've seen it and they move on. But everybody will get excited about something that's so uh, easy and to the point, easy to understand, easy to grasp, and or what they feel might be more intense or, I guess, less boring in their opinion. So if everybody's going to crowd around that, and you're not only going to get a bigger crowd for that sort of content, but you're also going to get a much more enthusiastic crowd, and people are going to get much more involved with it. And I'm not entirely sure I agree with that philosophy. I think it's kind of even in a little bit. I would say the enthusiasm is very different. I would agree that when it comes to uh, more easy to grasp concepts or more over the board concepts that any audience can grasp, a lot more people are going to get excited for it than for somebody who's just going for something that's a lot more niche or a lot more nuanced. And when it comes to the nuanced content, people just sit and they look at it. And I would agree to the fact that it's, it evokes different emotions because when you watch something in the, in the, that's less intellectual, I guess I wouldn't want to say intellectual. That sounds pretentious, but something that's just more common, it's easier for you to feel more laughter or you're easy to feel more, uh, anger or something that's, I guess, makes you feel more with the characters in more of the extreme ways 
when you watch something that's much more on the intellectual side, you're going to start thinking maybe uh, something more sad or something that just makes you feel more like you're sinking down as you're perceiving that sort of context. I guess it's more like a um, if you're going to compare authors, I would say like a C.S. Lewis versus more of, uh, I can't believe I forgot his name, uh, Ernest Hemingway. So the they're both the same, but you get different reactions from them. I'm carrying too far into this topic. All right, <laughs> on to the next one. This fourth story is probably my least favorite of the entire bunch, just because I'll be honest, I found it a little bit boring. I didn't think that much time needed to be taken for the story they were telling. And for what they were going for, the message they were just trying to send, it just, it could have, this was a 20 minute story that could have been told in, could have been told in five minutes. I don't really think it needed to be that long, but I still think it was pretty good as it being a part of the overall movie. And maybe you guys disagree with me. Maybe you, some of you people liked it, but that's just my opinion. Now, this fourth story is about a guy who's trying to dig for gold and wash out his, um, his pen, not his pen, his uh, little dish thing in the rivers, as you see a lot of times that they talk about the Old West. And he digs up dirt, puts it in this giant plate, and just washes it in the, in the river in order to see if he finds gold in that plate. And then if there is gold, he starts just keep digging in different regions until he finds more and more and more and more gold. And it does this montage of where he finds a little bit more gold and he starts keep going up and up and then he finds less gold. So he changes direction and he just keeps digging and washing and digging and washing and digging and washing. And that's part of the reason why I didn't like it. It's, it was too long of a montage. People would have gotten the point. But he keeps digging until eventually he finds the gold and it's this huge pocket of gold dug like three feet into the dirt. And so when he finds it and he's getting ready to start digging, he hears the, the click of a gun and he realizes that somebody's found that he's digging for the gold, knows that he's found the gold and is trying to rob him or kill him. And before he gets the chance to do anything, he's shot in the back. And so the guy who robs him thinks he might be dead. He waits a while to see if he might have died and he starts crawling in the hole to get ready to start digging the dirt for himself. And the old man, the miner, wakes up and starts fighting the robber and decides to fight him to the death and ends up disarming him from his gun and shoots the robber in the face. And the whole time he's screaming and yelling at him. He's like, I, I worked for all of this. You can't just come and take it from me. No, no. And so once it's all done, he digs up like a whole bunch of buckets of, not buckets, bags of gold. And he buries the dead body in that hole. And he gets back on the horse with everything he has. And after fixing up his wounds and sleeping for a few nights, he eventually leaves the river and just carries on doing what he's doing. Now, I think this is probably a much more optimistic approach to, I guess, a, a wider point than any of the other stories in this movie. Because I think the message they're trying to convey to everyone is that Hmm. I'm trying to think, of, I was about to say American Dream, but I don't think American Dream is really the way to to sum it up. I would say it's a lot about hard work, and that you got to work and work and work, and you get what you want, but at a cost of that hard work. 
And no matter how hard you're working or how honest you are or whatever you're doing, if you're minding your own business, you're all, there's always going to be somebody who wants to take the easy way out and just take it from you. And the point of that hard work is you also have to be prepared to work hard to obtain that success. And then you have to work hard to keep that success. And as long as you keep working hard, then overall, it's going gonna, it's gonna to pay in your favor. Now, I wanted to say American Dream because a lot of that sort of hardworking, keep it going, avoiding, uh, avoiding conflict, or I guess surpassing through conflict, is seen in a lot of stories that try to depict an American Dream about working throughout any obstacle. I mean, it's seen in stuff like uh, Death of a Salesman, except that one's much more much more pessimistic to that approach. But And especially since the Western genre focuses a lot on the frontier life as people building everything from their own two hands and everybody getting what they want just from working it themselves, no contacts, no, no involvement with other people. They just, you know, they build houses themselves. They build dams by themselves. They build farms by themselves. And I think it's trying to use that sort of tone and theme of self-worth and self-work to carry it more to modern day and just say, hey, you can get a lot of success and a lot of stuff that you want, or at least you can find out what your meaning of success is as long as you do it yourself. You don't rely on other people. And then when people try to take that from you, you have to be willing to fight for what you fought hard for already. And keep on what you already have. And I think when it comes to the optimism that the Cohen brothers have with their stories is that a lot of it focuses the negatives as more cautionary tales in order to figure out what not to do. But this story shows the guy that's doing the right thing and showing you what the right thing to do is against the robber who's more of probably reflective of what the characters for the other stories are, which is the bad person who's doing a wrongdoing or thinks that they're getting the easy way out and thinks that violence is probably the answer to his to all of his problems and think that's what he's going to get. So it's more of positive reinforcement in the middle of, I guess, negative reinforcement or negative reminders that are reinforced throughout the story. Now we're moving into the fifth story, which I think this will probably be my second favorite after the third story with Liam Neeson. And this story follows a girl and her brother who are traveling on the Oregon Trail. I, I, <laughs> I, I said Oregon Trail just because I thought of, that's how I used to pronounce that old computer game when I was a kid. You guys remember playing that, the Oregon, Oregon Trail? And you just had to get a bunch of like digital families into the caravan and keep it moving. And you had to make sure everybody was fed, everybody stayed alive, make sure all the horses were good. And then the goal was to reach the end. And that's what I just kept thinking about as it was going along because it reminded me so much of that game. But the story tells the story of a woman who's traveling with her brother on this trail and a large caravan of people. And you start seeing more of her character traits highlighted as they're carried along. And I definitely think they're trying to highlight that this woman's very submissive and is very accepting of how people uh, treat her or how people talk to her and just shrugs most things off and just tries to carry on in her own way. But uh, the beginning of the story has her brother passing away from cholera, I believe, which again also reminds me of that game because I always had people dying of cholera. And from there, she's left on her own. And this man that also works in the caravan starts approaching her and says, uh, I can help you move some of your stuff for a few days if you want to stay with us on the trail. 
Uh, I can help keep your things updated, make sure your wagon doesn't fall apart. And he's helping her. And he just slowly, as the story progresses, he keeps helping her with more and more and more stuff, which seems like nice acts. But at the same time, it's more of weird things for that time era, yet they're just completely normal and she's submissive to it. Like, uh, she carries a dog around with her, and the dog constantly barks at everybody and barks and barks and barks and barks. And she keeps getting complaints and complaints and complaints until the guy who's helping her says, look, everybody's having complaints about your dog. And she said, look, it's not even really my dog. It's my brother's dog. But I, I can't do anything about it. The dog's going to bark. And so he says, well, I can help you out. I can put the dog down for you. And so she she's very uh, you know dumbfounded by that idea, but she still submits to that offer and says, okay, yeah, sure. And he goes and takes the dog out to shoot it, but the dog is frightened by the gunshot because he misses, and the dog runs off and he can't shoot the dog. So the dog just runs away. And what's cool is as the story goes on in the background, if you have your volume up as you're going on, you can hear the dog barking out in the distance. So the time, uh, during the rest of the story, the dog's following them. And the rest of the story focuses a lot on the interactions between the woman and the helper. I guess that's the way I'm going to refer to them, the woman and the helper, because nobody in these stories gets names. And the woman and the helper carry on, and they start talking back and forth about what they perceive life on the frontier should be like, whether they should, you know, whether you should have a homestead or whether he's somebody that should just focus on business, 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 like his boss is, and just do that until the day he dies. And as he gets further along, he realizes that he's in love with this woman and he doesn't want her to be by herself like this for the rest of the trip because she doesn't have any family to go back to. She doesn't have family to meet. When she gets to the end of the trail, she's all she has, so he offers to marry her. And she responds pretty quickly and says that she will marry him. And they decide to get married. And then their dialogue kind of drifts off a little bit. I don't know if that was a style choice or just... And they just didn't think that helped for, towards the end of the story. And so the woman finds her dog. And she's trying to go out and play with the dog. So she gets away from the trail to have the dog play around with the prairie dogs and bark at the prairie dogs and freak out. And she thinks it's funny. And the head of the stagecoach, uh, not stagecoach, the head of the caravan starts going out to search for her since he knows she's missing and away from the caravan. And he finds her out in the middle of this big field playing with her dog. And as he's trying to get her ready and get them back going, he sees a whole uh, tribe of Indians approaching them and realizes there's no way we can get back to the caravan. These guys are definitely going to attack us. We have to get ready. So he finds a little mound to hide the girl behind and gives her a revolver with two bullets in it and says, if it looks like we're not going to make it, you need to put one in me and then put one in yourself. So that way the Indians don't torture you and or have their way with you or all of this stuff. And he gets ready to fight off all of the Indians. And the, that, that sequence is really cool on how they film it because I never thought about it until it started that the prairie dogs were so abundant in that region that they dug so many holes that the horses just put their, their hooves in the holes and trip. So a lot of them are going down by tripping over the holes and going through as he's also shooting down the other Indians with a repeater. And he keeps aiming for the chief because he's figuring if I kill the chief, the rest are going to get scared and they're going to run off. And the fight ends with the chief dying and everybody running off except for one 
uh, one Indian that's about to start riding towards him, and he leaves the mound, and he leaves the girl alone, and just says, fight's not over yet, get ready, and he goes out to fight the Indian, and she can't see what's going on, all she's hearing is guts, and and gunshots, and all this other stuff going on, and the the caravan leader ends up beating the Indian and winning and tricking him and shooting him in the head as uh, the rest of them just run off. But when he makes it back to the mound, he finds out that the girl was so confused with all of the grunting and the gunshots and the screaming that she had thought he was already dead and the Indians were on their way. So she shot herself in the head and the caravan leader decides to take the dog and go back to the caravan and carrying her body And it ends with him on horseback approaching the woman's helper, getting ready to tell him that she's passed and that it's all over. And that's where the story cuts. And it ends right there before it goes on to the next one. Now, this story is another one that I think influences self-awareness. And it tries to get people to think about submissiveness, which is honestly seen a lot in modern times more than people think. A lot of people are more willing to just take information as it goes or just take what you know take whatever commands they get and just take it as fact or just take it as reality and not think for themselves or think anything else and it's trying to say you need to think more for yourself think for yourself think for yourself because this cautionary tale is telling us this lady wasn't thinking for herself or didn't take the time to go and look at the situation to see if he actually was hurt or if the indians were coming and if she had then she would have lived and I mean, it's definitely not that dire of situations for us now, but it's trying to highlight that a simple mistake, like just not thinking for yourself can result in in a catastrophe in your life. Now, when I was reading different interpretations of that story, I saw a lot of it based on theories that it came from the standpoint of a woman and that it was more telling a tale of how women are really submissive and so on. And I didn't, I didn't really get that vibe from it. It didn't focus that much on just women themselves or try to focus on a submissive nature in women. But I just think they used that actress and that character more because that innocence that she had versus all these other rough riders going on highlighted that she was more willing to just accept, accept, accept whatever they were saying to her. So I don't think it was more on the idea of, you know, gender as it was just a personality trait and I think it was just focusing, much like the others, on giving a cautionary tale that tells you, don't be like this. Do not be like this. All right, and now we're on to the sixth and final story. We're at the last story, guys. You only have to listen to me for so much longer. Yay! So, this sixth story takes place inside of a stagecoach that's traveling towards a hotel in a nearby town. And on one side of the stagecoach, they're showing three people. One of them is a French doctor. Then there's a more fancy, prim and proper woman. And then it shows uh, a dirty uh, hunting, a dirty hunter and trapper that is covered in all of like the different pelts and skins and all of that. And then on the other side of the carriage, they show two British men that are very just very nice, they're wearing nice suits, and they look like they're official in whatever business they work in. And the dialogue that's carried about is with the first three people. It doesn't talk to, to the first two people until more towards the end of the story and you realize what the reality is. But it goes person to person as they're talking to each other, these three people, 
and they all talk about different negative parts in their life, or I guess just describing their life the way it is. And it starts with the trapper, and he talks about this Native American woman that he found out while he was hunting, and they didn't speak a lick of English, but yet they were um, they were hooking up, and they were uh, having sex with each other, or living with each other on and off, as they were both hunting, but they just never communicated in any language. And he just figured it was just an understanding they had just by looking at each other just by having a, a similar background and all that understanding. And then it moves on to the fancy woman who starts bringing judgment on him and thinks of him more as a sinner. And she thinks, no, no, I, I know there's two different people. There's the sinners and then there's the upright. And I'm the upright. I know what I'm talking about. And then the Frenchman joins in the conversation and starts asking about her story. And her story is that she's trying to travel to go see her husband who she hasn't seen for three years, who's uh, an intellectual professor and knows all this stuff. And the Frenchman starts critiquing her and judging her and saying, well, you haven't seen your husband for three years. What does that mean? And she was like, well, we've only been separated for a little bit. I know he still loves me. And then he's like, if he loved you at all. And she starts getting insulted and she thinks there's nothing wrong with the fact that she hasn't seen her husband in a long time, or she doesn't think there's anything wrong with the fact that she's living with her daughter and her son-in-law. And she thinks they're totally fine with her living with them and that arrangement. And the Frenchman keeps critiquing her and saying, yeah, right. You really think that they're okay with that? No, they're wishing that you're gone. And your husband may, may have loved you back then, but there's a good chance he doesn't love you now, which leads into more of the Frenchman's discussion on his ideas of love and how he thinks love is so uncertain and you really can't pinpoint it on things with how complex people are. So he starts talking about polygamy and how that would affect you know the idea of different lovers versus something like monogamy where it's just dedication to another person where it's hard to determine that somebody really is that dedicated especially from the idea of marriage of dedicated for life and as they're done judging each other and talking to each other they start going to the two people that are at the front of the stagecoach and they start talking to them and they say well what's what's your jobs and they start saying well you know we're um we're reapers of souls. I think that's what they said. Reapers of souls where we, we look at the, at the, the worst kinds of people and they say, well, what does that mean? They're like, are you bounty hunters? And they say, yeah, you could say that we're bounty hunters. And they talk about, well, we, we're just fascinated with our jobs as bounty hunters. We're fascinated with seeing people accept their fate in their eyes. You can see that they've taking they're taking all of their mistakes and all of their wrongdoings and all that stuff into their head as they're reaching their last moments until you see it in their eyes that they've accepted death and they've accepted their mortality and that it's all over and during those scenes where they're talking you can see different cuts to the three pairs of eyes of the other people in that stagecoach and it starts getting intense and then the light starts changing it's daytime but then it starts changing to night and as they're going along, they stop and there's just abrupt stop and they're at the hotel and so dark outside. There's nothing else around the hotel that you can see, just the hotel itself. And the two bounty hunters, or I guess reapers, whatever you want to call them, they get out of the, the stagecoach first and they take this body that's on top and they carry it into the hotel. And the three people that are left in the stagecoach are super afraid to get out. They're they're going like, no, you go first. No, you go first. Ladies first. Well, lady needs to be helped out of a carriage. And they debate with each other about who's going out when. And they just slowly make their way up to this hotel. 
And then they open the door eventually, and they just see this empty lobby where there's the staircase at the center. And the staircase just goes all the way up until there's this bright light and you don't see anything else. And the three of them just look at each other, nod and say nothing, and walk in to have the door shut behind them. And then the story ends there. And that's where the movie ends. And this story is, I think this one's probably the easiest to understand out of all of them. When you watch it and you see how creepy the two bounty hunters are and how they're looking at them, how demonic the outside of the carriage starts to look like after nighttime approaches, and this idea of judgment constantly put in your face as you're going along, you realize the three people in the stagecoach are all dead. And they're all on their way to judgment before they realize, are they going to heaven or hell? So the hotel is their approach towards the afterlife. And the two bounty hunters are pretty much grim reapers that have come to take their souls that way. And so a lot of it focuses on how post-death, these people are more focused on judging others than they are really looking at themselves. And through that first part of dialogue, they haven't accepted the idea that they're dead. They don't even think they realize that they're dead. They're just talking back and forth and arguing and judging each other. But as soon as the bounty, bounty hunters start talking to them and talking about acceptance and the realization of mortality, they all start looking at nobody else but the bounty hunters and not thinking about judging the other people and just start, their eyes start focusing and getting more and more startled and scared. And then you can just tell by looking at them that they're, tar they, they're realizing the reality of the situation and they're going, okay, I'm dead. And they start taking all of this bad stuff that they've just been talking about into account. So like the, the trappers realizing how weird and fucked up and how uncertain that situation he was living in and how, I wouldn't say unhealthy, but I'd say un, uh, without principles was probably his mistake in life. And then the old woman's mistake was living in such naivety without really taking other people into account or realizing that people did not like her as much as she thought they did. And then the Frenchman was more of realizing that he's, he was pretty much talking out of his ass. He didn't really think about what, I guess, what was important with other people more than focused on his own pretentiousness. And by the time they realize that, it's right when they're at the door of that hotel and they decide, okay, here I am, I'm going to judgment, and they go. And I think the message they're trying to send to us in that story is that we need to be more focused on ourselves and uh, figuring out what's wrong with us and trying to fix it and not focus on judging others and figuring out what other people are wrong. Because especially from the afterlife perspective, I mean, I'm a Christian, so I, I, believe in, I believe in a judgment upon my death. But you have to realize in any context of post-mortem judgment, you're going to be judged at the same context or at the same standards that you're judging everyone else. So if you're going around looking at other people thinking everybody's wrong and that you're the upright person, once that same spotlight is put on you, you have no choice but to realize, well, my life's not that, you know, that proper or that that morally fixed and morally right. I'm just as bad as everyone else. And I think as soon as we realize that in a way we're all just as awful as everyone else, we start on this path of self-improvement and self-reinforcement or become better all-around people that can not only think about ourselves in a way that's more reflective, but while also thinking about others in ways that we can talk to and boost others. 
Now, for this movie as a whole, it's without a doubt clear that the Coen brothers are trying to shoot for a message of self-awareness. They want people to think about what's going wrong in their personality or what's going right in their personality and just dissect it piece by piece, whether it's the first story talking about ego, whether it's the second story talking about our perception of others, whether it's the third story talking about uh, how we use others for our own personal gain, or the fourth story for more of the right thing of being able to work for ourselves and being able to make our own success. And then the fifth story talks about how we need to start thinking for ourselves. And once we think for ourselves, we'll be able to expand more and survive longer and get what we want done. And then the sixth story talks about it pretty much all in this one big, huge shell where we just got to say, take everything into account and acknowledge the good things and the bad things of yourself without worrying about other people and use it to build yourself without trying to tear other people down. And that's something I see a lot these days is a lot of people want to tear other people down and a lot of people want to pass judgment. And I just want to say, I was just about to say, hey, don't do that. That's a very simple message. Just go, hey, don't do that. Um, I just want you guys to, if you have seen this movie, I just want you guys to come away with the same message I did, that we can all be better people as long as we look at what's going good and what's going bad and learn how we can build others and use that to build ourselves. Now that's going to pretty much wrap up my discussion on The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And I hope if you guys haven't seen the movie already that you will see the movie. And for the rest of this, I'm going to talk about my future plans for this show. As you can tell by now, I'm discussing a lot of movies. But I'm going to go into other avenues and other discussion points. So I'm going to be talking about movies. I'm going to be talking about TV shows. Everything from analyzing why Tommy Boy is so hilarious and how different kinds of slapstick comedy has changed versus something like another Colin Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men, and how uh, facing pure evil can be rough for people that view an afterlife or view a deity in their life. And I'm also going to be doing these episodes called Director Spotlights, where I'm going to be picking directors that I really like or that other people really like and discuss how they've started their filmography and their style and their points and their themes and how it's changed into the movies they make now. And maybe sometimes they change entirely or sometimes they carry stuff with them, but there's plenty of directors I want to talk about. I think the first one I might talk about will probably be Eli Roth because he's one of my favorite directors. And then I'm also going to be discussing popular debates in movies. And those are definitely going to be ones where I'm going to start having guests on the podcast and we'll start talking about different movies that we either like or dislike or movies that we interpret differently or just all stuff, you know, movies that we disagree on and just think of different ways we can think of new ways of thinking movies. If you guys have anything you want to suggest or you have any movie you want me to talk about or even if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to DM me on Instagram at Ghost of Text and let me know what you think. And once again, I want to thank you all for taking the time out of your day to listen to me ramble on and have a good day and spread the love. Have a good one.